Now it is time for our morning speaker this month to come on up. It's Bruce, and he's teaching out of Exodus, and I'm excited to hear what Bruce is going to teach today, so come on down. So we were going to be in chapter 20 this morning, so um, go to chapter 4 of Exodus. Chapter 4, basically we kind of talked about this a little bit last week. It's the call of God to Moses to step out of his comfort zones and go help someone besides himself. Something he had tried before, got burned, and then, I don't know if you were listening carefully to what was being said today, but God put her through a lot of desert experience. And often we tell people, accept Jesus Christ because he has a wonderful plan for your life. I'd like to amend that by scripture and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and it includes suffering. And I think we would probably have more genuine converts if we would tell the truth that the scripture tells. And yet, look at the woman who's in our midst just now. Look what God is doing. And I would wonder, maybe that what helps me this the most, I don't know if you ever read George MacDonald. He's the person that influenced C.S. Lewis the most. C.S. Lewis then once said, I have never written a book that I have not either directly quoted George MacDonald or extensively used his ideas. And George MacDonald often has this beautiful way of showing you how sorrow is God's servant. And God will use it to bless us and make us what he wants us to be. So remember Moses had the courage to stand up for others. Then God calls him to risk everything which wasn't much, he was nothing but a Bedouin shepherd, but he does give it up and he's going back to where he's wanted for murder to tell the most powerful man on earth, I would like to ruin your nation's economy because I've talked to a burning piece of shrubbery. <laughs> he does go and my uh, friend Miguel and I have decided to skip chapter 4, 24 to 26 and I'll probably cover it, but go to 27. And we'll come back to those other ones later. But look at verse 27. It says, The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses said to Aaron all the words which the Lord had sent him to speak and all the signs which he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of this slave race. And Aaron spoke the words that the Lord spoke through Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and then watch this real carefully. And all the people did what? Believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, and that he had seen their affliction, what did they do next? Two verbs. They did what? They bowed and worshipped. Okay, question. On a scale of one to ten... How responsive are the Israelites to Moses' message? About 10, yeah. You say, Dr. Boyne, every time you speak, do people come down and bow and worship God and, and all this weeping? And no, no, no. So Moses is really doing well here, okay? And this is the last verse of chapter 4. So just go a little bit further, and let me read to you a little bit about 5. So afterwards, Moses then 
went and now has his first audience with the most powerful man in that entire region of the world. And maybe at that particular point in time, according to the ancient historians, perhaps the most powerful nation perhaps on all the earth. Maybe there was an emperor in China that could match him so far away, but in that region, no one was as powerful as the Pharaoh. They are actually entering in the midst of what the scholars call their golden age. So he goes to this extremely powerful man, and he says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and ruin my economy? I have free labor in these slaves. And I love this. I do not know the Lord. Moreover, I will not let Israel go. And they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence of the sword. The Lord actually didn't say that, but Moses is scrambling now. He had his big speech. God had given him the word. He said it. He was faithful. It fell on its face, and he now looks like a fool. So he comes up with this, well, he'll kill us if we don't, so you'll lose your slaves anyway. And, of course, this doesn't seem to work with the Pharaoh either. So the king of Egypt said to him, Moses, Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens, the Pharaoh said. Behold, the people of the land are many now, and you will make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh then showed why he should run the most powerful nation on earth. He calls in the taskmasters, and he says, you have to produce so many bricks, the amount of bricks for slaves was reasonable. But those of you who've done any construction know that if you pour cement and don't put rebar in, what happens? It'll crumble. So when you make bricks, straw is the rebar. The straw mixed in the mud makes these bricks extremely you know, strong to compare to bricks without straw. And what these Israelis were doing were making the bricks and probably the Egyptian farmers were gathering the stubble, the straw that they couldn't use because it wasn't as rich in nutrients, and that was used by the slaves and added into the brick mix. So now Pharaoh says, tell the Jews to get their own rebar. Then they had to scramble with lots of their you know, manpower, go through all the farms of Egypt and gather this stubble and bring it to where they're making bricks. And then when they did all that and diverted all that manpower there, they couldn't fulfill their quota of bricks, so the taskmasters over the Jews, their own Jewish ones, they were brought in and beaten. And they were told, you didn't fulfill your labor of bricks. And the taskmasters asked for an audience with the Pharaoh, and they come and they bow down, and they said, why are you beating us? It's your fault. Your people didn't give us the straw. We had to divert the manpower to go get the straw, to make the bricks, to make the quota. We can't. It's impossible. And then the Pharaoh says, oh, but it is, because if you have time to go worship to this strange God who's speaking to Moses, you have time to get straw. The quota will not be reduced. So these Israeli taskmasters back out of Pharaoh's presence, and guess who they find? Moses. And they go up to him and they said, you have made us look bad in our oppressor's eyes. We hate you. Thank you for coming out of the desert. Why don't you go back? 
So, how would you feel if you're Moses? You've come to deliver your people, and what's happened? You've heard him. Did you listen carefully to what Iona said? She, everything she tried that she wanted, God was taking, so she went and told God he was bad. And maybe sometimes that's a good way to pray. Because did you also hear what she said? In the speaking out of her pain, the answers came. Let me read to you what Moses said. Then Moses turned to the Lord. And I love what she said. Then she wrote in her journal, she still was dealing with God. And sometimes when you really think God has messed you over, sometimes the best thing to do is still pray, but just tell him he's done that. You say, no, 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 he'll hurt me. You can't say that to God. Well, you're thinking it. How stupid do you think God is? (laughs) Right? So tell him. The rumors are he has very strong self-esteem. And he knows the beginning from the end. He knows every thought of man. You cannot hide from the majesty and the power of God. And so if you hurt, and many hurt, then tell them. And so Moses models for us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and says, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you've not delivered your people at all. Let me caution you. If you have the risk to look out for others, if you have the risk to let God push you, as Iona was pushed by God through Albert, you guys who know Albert know he can be pushy. I know Albert's training pastor. He was pushy too. But Albert was pushing because he wanted to bless her. And God has pushed Moses into coming out of his comfort zones to risk everything And he goes before Pharaoh. He's basically outmaneuvered because how smart it was of Pharaoh. Because what did he do when he did the straw thing? Did he not separate Moses from his constituency? And what's the best way to slow down a resurrection? Separate the leadership from the followers and the resurrection is over. Because without a leader, it goes nowhere. And Pharaoh has effectively turned the people against Moses. He's brilliant. The devil is brilliant. And the devil would like to destroy your soul. But Moses prayed. And he told the Lord. And then I love chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to kill you for saying... No, excuse me. (laughs) The Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. You have to act first, and then he comes. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And then in chapter 6, verses 2 through 8, some of the more insightful scholars of the Old Testament say, what you now have is a program of how God is going to deal with the people of God, who were the Israelites then, and who he's continued to deal with the people of God, who are us, for all these years, and it's only seven verses, but it's theologically so brilliant, people have written two, three, four hundred page books on it. It's magnificent. You say, well, what's in it? You have to do that on your own. So skip to chapter 14, okay? But just to let you know, it's brilliant stuff. But 
what you don't realize happens is then Moses goes down and he confronts the Pharaoh, and then those signs are given. Pharaoh duplicates the signs. Then Moses pours a little bit of water out, and it turns to blood, and Pharaoh brings his magicians in, and they pour out a little bit of blood, and then God sort of trumps his trick and turns the entire Nile River to blood, and thus begins the ten plagues. The final plague breaks the back of the Egyptians, and they let the Israelites go. And then, if you can imagine this, they're probably so excited, they're free, they've seen God destroy one of the greatest empires on earth economically, and so they're heading towards the border, and they get out there, you know, they're a bunch of slaves, they don't like they have maps, so they get all confused, and they're between a body of water they can't get past, and over the horizon, the Bible says, comes the greatest army on earth, led by 600 chariots, which in today's parlance would be 600 tanks, plus many other tanks, and the entire Egyptian army. Now, in the 10th plague, what had God done to Israel? Do you guys know that one? It's where the Passover comes. The firstborn of every Egyptian home who didn't do the blood thing on their door mantles dies. So how many men in that army had lost a brother? And how mad do you think that army was? And these are a bunch of runaway slaves. So that army, when it hit those slaves, would be like a hot knife going through butter. So go to chapter 14, and let me show you what happens. Verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they spoke to Moses. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt? You've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much does Moses have the Israelites behind him? Is there a difference between chapter 4 and chapter 14? Would you like to be a leader of God? By the way, do you think Albert is ever criticized? Another question. Do you think the Pope is Catholic? Do you think two and two is four? Or three and three is six? Or two times two is four? Or birds fly or fish swim? Or that once you follow God and go into leadership, you will be criticized? All the answers to those questions is the same. At the university, we have this procedure that we select four senior students, and we have chapel three times a week at the university, and uh, during the year, four seniors get to be the speakers in chapel. It's called Senior Speaks. In fact, sometimes one of them is in one of my classes, you know, and it's kind of neat to see them there. One time I just had an older class of students, and I said, um, how many of you have uh, gone to chapel when they were Senior Speaks? And almost everybody raises their hands, and I said, uh, how well do they do? One goes, some better than others. I said, let me share something with you. You all want to get up and be the head guy that speaks? I want you to know that for every person who praises you, 
there's at least another one who's sitting in the pews thinking they could do much better. You say, do you understand that, Dr. Blunt? Oh, yeah. Have you ever been criticized? Is the Pope Catholic? It's going to happen. And then you have to understand that. To count the cost, if you're going to go into leadership, you take a leadership position in the church, it's always there. And some people do do lousy jobs, and they should be criticized. But sometimes if you do a great job, you're still criticized. And Moses has done all this, and they're going, why did you come here? Why did you bring us? And they're just screaming at him. And I love his answer. And here it comes. Then Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of who? The Lord. Where were the disciples when Jesus was on the cross? Have you read Matthew really carefully? Remember how they formed the fighting square that the Romans had taught them, and they were fighting off everybody to keep people from crucifying Jesus, and they killed each disciple, the last man, and then finally they crucified Jesus. Is that how it goes? Where were the disciples? Hiding. Did man have anything to do with your salvation that is so beautifully accomplished on the cross? She quoted the perfect verses, you are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2. How is Israel saved? By grace. Moses just says, your only job is to chill out and open your eyes and watch. Salvation in the Old Testament is by grace. Through faith. Salvation in the New Testament is by grace. Through faith. Let me finish the speech. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Okay, question. Has Moses changed from chapter 5 to chapter 14? And what did God say to Moses in chapter 6, verse 1? Stand back, Moses. Chill out and watch. Who now thinks like God? Moses does. That's why one of your own, one of your peers, just spoke to you about all the difficult things she's gone through. And now she can, with total, total integrity, say, however bad it gets, he's still there. And we can come out. And Moses now sees this. Now, let me ask a little bit of a difficult question. How come the Israelites don't see it? Iona gave us a hint. Chapter 6, verse 9. The oppression was so heavy on them that they could not hear Moses. But maybe there's something else, too. They get across the river. You say, well, are you going to read those passages? No, if you've seen the Prince of Egypt or you've seen, you know, Cecil B. DeMille's thing, you know, with all that, you know how it works. So boom, the waters go back. Everybody runs across. All the greatest army on earth comes right after him. The water decides to close again on the very command of God. And there's a complete, very thorough chariot wash. Okay? And I don't know if you were there as a young boy, say you're 15, 
Do you imagine how fun it was to been to know you're almost were killed, you've been slaves all your life, and the people that have kicked you in the head and treated you like dirt all their lives, all their junk is floating right there in the river. I'm sure all the young teenage boys went down and went to the side of the river and picked out swords and souvenirs and took them back to their camp and go, cool, look at the, those idiots, they're all dead, we're free. And everybody must have been pretty excited. And we know they were excited because Miriam gets all the women together and they get their tambourines out and they get down. <laughs> and they sing a song that is so old that the Jews have carefully preserved. It's so old. The Hebrew is so archaic that we still don't know exactly all the words. That we got easily the gist of it. But that's how much the song, they sang this song. And they sang praises of God because they had been delivered. And then a beautiful thing happens. They're starting to travel. They go a little farther into the desert. And they realize that they're in the desert. And what's in the desert? Nothing. No 7-Elevens. No wells. So finally they find water, but it's bitter and they can't drink it. In fact, the place is called Mara, which in Hebrew means bitter. And they go to Moses and they see the problem. What do they say to Moses? Why'd you bring us out into the desert to die? <laughs> you say, well, they're griping. Oh, yes. In fact, they will continue to gripe until God gives them a bachelor's in griping. And then in the book of Numbers, they then gain a PhD. They become the gripers of the world. There's other words, but this wouldn't have been a fun group to travel in the desert with. And of course, they gripe at Moses, and Moses has made a mistake. Remember, he prayed. And when he prayed and when he obeyed, he prays again, and God gives him instructions, says, throw this wood, this tree in the water. And the waters miraculously become sweet. You say, I don't know if I'd have prayed for those ingrates. They criticized me in chapter 5. They criticized me in chapter 14. Now they're criticizing me again about water. Don't you think God has pretty good power with water? He just used water pretty effectively to save us. But they gripe. And Moses prays and power flows to this man. And the water becomes sweet. But does Israel have faith? You are saved by grace through faith. Has Israel had faith yet? You know what the next question is, don't you? Are they saved? They don't have faith. Can I give you a potential answer to it? It was God's fault. Can I illustrate that? I need two guys. Is that Frank back there? Yeah, okay. You're hiding behind, okay. And your friend's name is? David. David and Frank. Let's take you back in time. Let's say you're both 15. You came across the Red Sea. You watched the whole thing drown. You all picked up swords on the shore later on. You guys thought you are absolutely cool. You wore the swords. You didn't really know what to do with them. And luckily, you didn't cut yourselves with them. But you guys thought life was pretty cool. And what you would do, as the whole nation would travel, you guys would always go to the edge of whatever oasis you were. You'd find a tree. 
you'd get together and figure out who's the lightest and you would boost one another up that tree and you'd go up the palm trees and skinny up as far as you can and then you would look into the horizon to see where you were traveling to and if there was water. And then you'd come down and go, hey, I see it shimmering two to three miles away. We can reach it in a day. How cool. And you'd go back and tell everybody there was water two to three miles away and we should travel with hope and joy and everybody in Israel would go, praise God. God's a giver of gifts. Amen, amen, brother. And you would travel there. Then you would spend a week there after the traveling, you know, because you have a lot of people to move and small children and old people to move. Then just before you're going to move again, you two would go to the edge, find a tree, help one another up the top, and you look way out in the horizon. There it is, two to three miles away is more water. Could not God have done that to have good water every two to three miles all the way down to Mount Sinai? Is not God that powerful to do that? And maybe he could even put a couple 7-Elevens there. What is God doing to Israel? And what did God do to Iona? And why? Then you get to chapter 16, and they're running out of food. So what do the Israelites do? They get together, have a praise time of prayer, and then they all go, God supplied, we know he'll give us food. What do they really do? It's in chapter 16. If you want to read it, it's in verse 2 and 3. They go to Moses and go, why did you bring us out of Egypt? We have, we're all going to die. And they gripe. Then God does this miraculous thing of bringing them food that rests on the camp every single night. And then in chapter 17, they're short of water again. And guess what they now do? They gripe again. What is the Bible trying to show us? Maybe real salvation is grace through faith. And maybe God loves Israel so much that he stresses them so that they can be like Moses and have faith. Now let me back you up to the Moses story again. Moses cared about someone besides himself. He killed an Egyptian, lost everything, ran to the desert, helped someone because it seems to be part of his DNA. But he gets a wife out of that deal. He has years. Remember, Iona had that year where she calls it the lost year. Moses had 40 of them. And then God calls him and says, now I want you to move and go and do what I want you to do. And Moses then risks going back by faith. And he gets out there, they first believe chapter 4, then they all turn on him in chapter 5, and God comes to him and says, you've done what I've asked, now watch and see. Now Moses could have quit at that point. See, the difference between the people of God and Moses is Moses had received grace, but had developed what? Faith. So why didn't God have food delivered by grateful Arabs who were directed by God to meet them at every point that they camped and why didn't God have pools of water spring out God could have easily designed the world to do that he could have miraculously deposited water there let me make one suggestion to you God loves you and I so much that he's going to save us all by grace so that we don't become proudful idiots how many of you have met proudful Christians how much fun are they? Are you hoping they're going to heaven? <laughs> Ever thought about that? Like, oh no, they're going to be, it can't be heaven. Is there a third place? Like, is there a region there or something, you know? 
I've often thought about that. Ooh. But prideful Christians are a plague on God and a plague on the earth. And God would like to remove that from us so that we're a blessing. Again, go back to Iona's prayer from St. Francis that we don't receive understanding, but give it. And that we don't get the love we so desperately and rightfully need, but give it, as we are saved by grace, which takes away all pride, but through faith. And maybe the only way to get faith is by delay. You say, no, why won't God remember? Why won't God act? Oh, he's remembering, and he's going to act. But he loves us too much to act immediately. Because if we develop faith, we have then developed the thing that magnifies his heart and fills his heart with joy. Because without faith, it is impossible to please who? God. And he would like to give you that which brings him the most joy. I had the privilege yesterday of hearing what I think is one of the greatest preachers in all of San Gabriel Valley in Los Angeles, which is a huge area. His name is Pancho Jores. He's kind of like a rock star. I mean, just so many people know this guy. His church has about 4,000, and when he goes to the Calvary Chapel pastor's conferences, Albert says he's like a rock star. Everybody wants to talk to Pancho. Guess who Pancho always has time for when he goes to the pastor's conference? He spent well over an hour and a half with this person, Albert Lee. And Pancho talks Spanish with him. And I think he speaks Chinese. It's interesting. This Pancho is a great, great preacher. And so I was at an event, and I, I told the guy I was traveling with, I said, uh, hey, let's go a little early. Maybe we can catch Pancho. And we got in the door two minutes before Pancho began to speak. And Pancho said some really interesting things. And one of the things he said was, he's got to stress you if he's going to bless you. And I thought, if anybody knows that, it's Pancho. Because life hasn't been a bowl of cherries for him. But he's persevered, and he's done well. And wherever Pancho goes, he just blesses. And Pancho is not arrogant. Because he knows he was saved by grace. He said one other thing that's been haunting me. And all the time I was driving here from L.A. to Fresno, and then Fresno here this morning... He said an interesting thing. He went to a pastor's conference one day. It was Friday night. He went to the first session. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, how these things work. And this fellow from Downey Calvary Chapel stood up at the end of his service and said, guys, if you're hurting, perhaps you need to ask for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Pancho didn't tell us what he did, except that he went to those days before cell phones. I think this was 1981 or 87. He went to the uh, payphone, and there was a line. He remembers he was fourth in line. But when he got on the phone, his wife picked up the phone. He says, it's me. I'm coming home. I'm leaving the conference, and I'm so sorry. She goes, are you okay? He says, I'm so sorry. Are, are you okay? She says, I'm so sorry. I haven't been the man I need to be to you or the children. Pancho has a herd of children. And she goes, are you okay? He says, I'm so sorry. You will see me soon. I'm driving home. He had probably done the dangerous thing. He prayed. He asked. And the Lord smote his heart. And then that's when it started. Pancho used to run the cafeteria at APU. 
They paid him so poorly, as universities in those situations do, that he asked the university the right to take home the extra food at night so he could feed the herd. And he made it work. He humbly did it. And then I heard through the grapevine that he was running a Bible study. It had 30 people in it. The next time I heard about it, it had 60. The next time I heard about it, it had 120. They had to move. And then the next time I get a phone call that I heard about it, and it was one of his associates, and they said, hey, Dr. Bede, do you have time on a Wednesday night to do our study? So I went there. There was well over 200 people there. It was at a junior high. It was an amazing surface. It was simple, simple music. In fact, I kept thinking, how come that one singer doesn't look at us while he's playing the guitar? He should look at the audience. That's wrong. I later found out he was blind. Uh, some of you are more perceptive than I. And the next time I went there, it was at Shure High School in L.A., and there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds there. And now if you go to Poncho's Church, it's 4,000. They have three services on Sunday morning, and they're all packed. And he's a blessing to others. But he had to go to the desert first in the wilderness. He had to go through the tough times, and then now he can give. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what Iona said. It is through grace, not of ourselves, that we are saved. But you want us to have faith. And Father, for everyone in this room, faith is different. And what they will do will be different than what I have to do. And what Moses did, or the man who couldn't walk because he was paralyzed, Jesus asked him to have faith. And Father, we ask that you give us the haunting of your scriptures, the haunting of what our sister has shared with us, and that we can benefit from her words and the words of scripture. Bless us, Lord, for in your name we pray. Amen.